Hi, I'm Greg McBrayer, and I basically do work on the ancient Greek philosopher Xenophon, about whom I'm sure all of you have heard. Okay, wait, that is excellent because one of my first questions was going to be, how are you supposed to pronounce, most people say Xenophon or Xenophon because there's an O there, but you would say Xenophon. Look, um, I'm going to tell you a dirty secret about ancient Greek. It's mostly just people's best guesses. We don't don't have any dead ancient Greek people to talk to, right? So we just kind of, we don't know. It's, um, his name is Xenophon and it's actually derived from two words that we would be familiar with. Xeno is, uh, means foreigner, like xenophobia. And phone means sound, so his name means something like weird sound or something like that. <laughs> a lovely name for a human being. I say Xenophon. I heard people say Xenophon, Xenophon. I've heard everything, so okay. however you're comfortable pronouncing it. And it's funny. I say, hey, I hear people pronouncing this all the time, but actually I don't hear people That's pronouncing false. it hardly at all. Plato, <laughs> right. Socrates, Aristotle get all the love, and Xenophon right. even has dialogues and stuff because he was a student of Socrates, even has dialogues mm-hmm. like Plato. And they're largely by the pop culture sensibilities. They're largely ignored. People wouldn't know him. In your opinion, why do you think that is? And if somebody asked you for your elevator pitch, why should I read Xenophon? Sure. What do you tell him? Sure. So uh, he's sort of, you're right. He's sort of thought of as the dumb jock student of Socrates. Like he was kind <laughs> of, I'm a pencil-necked weenie, so perhaps that's why I admire him. He was a tough guy. He was a general. He was a, he was a sort of successful military leader. And uh, yeah, for for all of history, he's sort of gone down as this less impressive guy. Um, I will say it's only the last 100, 150 years or so that uh, he's fallen out of that sort of pantheon of Greek philosophers that you mentioned. So as little as 150 years ago, um, most major thinkers thought Xenophon was really impressive. Nietzsche actually says Xenophon's more impressive than Plato. What? Um, so yeah, that's right. Um, and then, you know, Machiavelli was a big fan of Xenophon. Uh, he... Machiavelli mentions Xenophon more times than he mentions Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero combined in his works. So he he's he has had this very stellar reputation, but it's fallen away in the last 150 years. And I, I do have a thought as to why it's not my own. Um, it's that Xenophon, he preferred to let people think he was less smart than he really is. And so he wrote in a really re- highly rhetorical manner. And I think that in the last 150 years, as we've become less accustomed to people being rhetorical in this way, we take him at face value and, and don't see the serious depth behind what's going on. Wait, that's, so he's, he's a much deeper thinker than we think that he is. That's the first thing I would say. That, elevator pitch. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Yeah, yeah. No, that fascinates me that you said he's writing in a highly rhetorical fashion. Um, so right. I maybe what I think of as rhetoric is highfalutin, long sentences. In the old translations I was reading from the 1800s and 1900s of Thucydides, Herodotus, Aristotle, their stuff in their English translations and their old translations were kind of rough to get through. And Xenophon felt like as close to modern journalism, like in his descriptions of the war, like all the sentences are clear. He's got this whole on horsemanship. There were long excerpts in that. It felt like something straight out of a modern horse riding magazine. Easy to read, easy to understand. I think that's right. I think he was aware that uh, later readers would not be speaking Greek. And so he thought, let's let's do something that other people can read and think, and, and they'll, they'll be initially attracted to. Um, so, yeah, his Anabasis, by the way, um, which is his account of his uh, battles in Persia, is frequently used in Greek classes as an introductory text for people to start reading Greek. So I think he was very intentionally writing in a sort of simple manner. But I think it's a little misleading. It's much more complicated than, than it would seem. I'll, I'll give some examples later on maybe. But So elevator pitch. Here's what I'll yes. say. The Education of Cyrus is one of the best books ever written in the entire world. Uh, it is absolutely my favorite book. It is, um, 
it is about the it is a sort of fictional account of the founder of the Persian Empire, Cyrus the Great. And I've taught it for 20 years now. And everywhere I've taught it at a small rural school in Kentucky, at a fantastic private school in Atlanta, Georgia, at state schools in Maryland and Georgia. Students, this book they've never heard of, this author they've never heard of, they fall in love with this text. It is a it is an adventure story. It is like he conquers the whole world. Uh, there's the love story in the heart of it. Um, there's all kinds of questions about justice and right or wrong. And I'll, I'll just point out that I think the book is actually deeply philosophic. So when I say it's it's an adventure story, I actually think it's a work of philosophy disguised as an adventure story. And so like, you know, a 16, 17, 18 year old kid can really get into it. And it's so much more, I mean, you've read some Plato. So you know that like, sometimes it's kind of like, well, there's nothing really exciting here. Correct. It's just like, some people talking and- right. Okay, fine. There's not much drama. But we all know that dramas grab your attention, right? Shakespeare is poetry, I think. Uh, philosophy masquerading is poetry. And so you have these things that are much more accessible to folks, but it sort of insinuates in a, not an insidious manner, but sort of you get the philosophy kind of secondhand. And you don't realize you're thinking philosophically. And so there's this love story, for example, in The Education of Cyrus, and one character falls in love with this beautiful woman, and it, it, there's a conversation between Cyrus and this young man about this beautiful woman, and you start to realize that there's questions of the beautiful and the noble, and what's love, and what is the human soul like? And the, the guy who's fallen in love says, well, the human soul is sort of bifurcated, it has two parts, and I'm at, I'm at war with myself. And so then you realize, well, that's sort of an, I think Xenophon's trying to get you to think about the Republic, which, which talks about the tripart division of the soul. So he's trying to get you to think about what the soul is like, but it's, an, it's, it's tethered to a more real experience that you and I, you know, you and I have fallen in love, I presume at some point. So you have something like that going on and you, and you can sort of grasp right and jump right into it. So the education of Cyrus, uh, and I would recommend highly my friend Wayne Ambler's translation with Cornell University Press, if you're going to pick up the education. What Cyrus. do you like about it most? Well, it's faithful uh, to the original. Um, it's, I think that Wayne, so I think one of the problems with the older translations is that they're not sufficiently attuned to what Xenophon is doing rhetorically. Okay. And so they, they therefore miss it and they're like, well, it's kind of boring, so I'm going to change it and do this myself. Some of them literally will say at the beginning, Xenophon's not a very serious thinker. <laughs> if you don't think the guy you're translating is a serious thinker, you're not going to do a good job translating him. And so, so Wayne takes him very seriously and places where you're like, well, that seems like a weird word choice. Ambler preserves that for you so that you have to wrestle with it in a way that other translations kind of gloss over. So, and it's, it's readable. It's, there's, it's not sophisticated. It's not stilted. Uh, he's, he's a marvelous translator. So do you think Xenophon's rep, this, whatever this reputation he gets, right. is it because he gets matched up against people who in some ways, I mean, I know Plato's trying to explain things right. in these dialogues, but yeah, they're yeah, sometimes yeah. deliberately obtuse. And Socrates, as much as Socrates, totally the character says, oh, I'm explaining this and I'm being very clear. The stuff gets super complicated. Even very intelligent people can get lost in the Socratic dialogue and can't figure out what is the argument being made. And you hit Xenophon and it's just like breath of fresh air. But maybe the problem is the people who like this stuff are into super um, analytical, hyper complex things. And then they hit Xenophon and they're like, this is too easy. This must be done. I think there's something to that. Um, but I, again, I think that they don't, they miss what's the, the depth there. But yeah. I think you're right. And I think that um, Diogenes Laertes talks about a rivalry between, who's, he's a guy who wrote biographies of ancient philosophers. And he talks about a rivalry between Plato and Xenophon. Okay. And so like a friendly rivalry, I, I suspect. But I think that Xenophon is actually critiquing Plato for some of the things you're talking about, actually. It's too heady. Uh, and, and by the way, it also presents philosophy as having access to some magical mysteries of the universe. And I think that Xenophon is saying that that's too likely to be corrupted into a kind of uh, mysticism or something like that, and therefore not to be philosophy anymore. 
So it, I think there's a critique there, but you're right. Xenophon's totally open. Um, you mentioned the horse treaty. My personal favorite is a, he wrote another treatise on hunting with dogs. Okay. Uh, naturally. And it's a, you know, I had, I have students who've worked with horses. I taught in Kentucky, as I mentioned, and I have students who've uh, sort of trained dogs and they're like, these are great texts on, it still holds up. Right. But the weird thing about the hunting with dogs one is that, um, pardon me for a moment, I'm going to lose some people who think this is a little too platonic, it's getting into the mystical parts, but the whole book is about how to hunt rabbits. Um, Now, not the whole book, actually, it changes about three quarters of the way through, but the Greek word for rabbits is logoi, L-A-G-O-I, translate, change into English characters for us, which is remarkably similar to the Greek word for speech or reason, logoi, L-O-G-O-I. And so I think that Xenophon is playing this kind of playful game where what the treatise is, is about is, and this is amazing that you can do these two things simultaneously. On the one hand, it really is just a treatise about how to train dogs. And on the other hand, it seems to be a treatise about how to lead young people through rational discourse, which is nuts. Okay, so this is fascinating to me because I've, so I had you, I had the English degree. So I got my master's right. in English. And so what you just described, your attempt to like, these two words are very similar. I think he's doing something yeah. else here. That just smacks of the kind of things when you're sitting around in an English classroom and you're coming up with like that symbol symbolism metaphor. You're like, of I think course, he meant this, right, but you right. can't. Obviously, it's not easy to prove, and maybe it's not provable, but it it does it it's adds a depth yeah. to it. And he, when he says one of the funnier parts is he's like, stay away from hunting wild boars, stick to stick to rabbits. You know, very Elmer Fudd, good advice, right? <laughs> but then the word for boar is remarkably similar to the Greek word for being which is that subject which those heady Platonic dialogues investigate. Okay. And so he, he says you have to be very careful when trying to do this kind of hunting of animals. So there, there's a lot there, and it's, it's fun to tease out, um, but I do think there's some – he's just a funny guy. That's what I would say. So there's more, there's want- definitely, more, definitely more humor in Xenophon than Plato, I would say. If somebody wants to read Xenophon, you'd say, oh, they should read – for sure, out of the gate, you should read Cyrus. Yes, no question. The education of Cyrus. Then uh, and then, case, you know, yeah. I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say in that case, you love Cyrus, but you chose, and maybe because there's a gap in the market, you worked on editing a piece and and you were the overall editor of the book, Xenophon, the Shorter Writings, which of course does right. not include the stuff on Cyrus. Right. So uh, first, in the first place, Wayne Ambler has already done this remarkable translation of the education of Cyrus. Okay. This guy uh, you know that you think is great. Has he's a friend of mine. It's, it's excellent. Uh, we're in, it's in the same series, mine and his. So it's in the same press, same series. I'm actually currently working on an interpretation of the education of Cyrus for a manuscript for a book length treatment of that book. So I'm writing on the education of Cyrus, even though I, I haven't translated it. And then why did I do the shorter writings? Uh, the series that I mentioned that I'm a part of um, Cornell University Press, the Agora series, they've translated almost all of Xenophon to this point. And they were missing these shorter writings. So I thought, let's fill out, let's complement this. We all share the same kind of vision as to what kind of translations these ought to be. And actually, Wayne Ambler is one of the guys who contributed to the shorter writings. He did the translation of the skilled cavalry commander uh, and one other one, I believe, Ways and Means. So, so Wayne, yeah, Wayne's my friend. By the way, Wayne... Uh, I'll, I'll confess, Wayne is far superior to me in some ways. Um, and so I was very grateful that he came on board for this shorter writings thing. So, uh, yeah. 
superior in philosophical thinking and political thinking or just simply mastery of this old Greek language? Yes, yes, all of it. All of it. Okay. He's, he's better at Greek and he's better at the text, but I mean, he's retired. So, you know, hopefully in another 20 or 30 years, I'll be where he is. But the shorter writings, I mean, since you mentioned it, I will make a pitch for it. Yeah. It includes some of my favorite texts. So I mentioned that the education of Cyrus is where I would begin with, with someone who's interested. The problem is the education of Cyrus is like 200 pages. So, you know, a novice could sort of get put off by just the, the size of it. And so if that's the case, I would let me recommend a work called The Regime of the Lacedaemonians or The Regime of the Spartans. It's in the Shorter Writings volume that I edited, uh, translated by Sue Collins, a, a friend of mine at uh, Notre Dame. That text is, is probably 20 or 30 pages, maybe 40 pages. And it, it seems to be a praise of Sparta, which Xenophon was from Athens. Sparta is their rival. Uh, Xenophon went on this big military campaign that I talked about. Uh, which Athens didn't like, so he went into exile and sort of became an ally of a Spartan general and basically set up shop in, outside of Sparta for the rest of his life. So ostensibly, this is a sort of praise of Sparta. It begins by saying, I once wondered that this small city could achieve such amazing power and great renown or reputation. And so it appears to be this, like, Sparta's this amazing place. Right. I, I don't want to rob the, the readers of, of the delights of figuring this out for themselves, but I'll just, I'll just say that I think it's actually a satirical takedown of Sparta. And it's very, very funny, and it points out some of the nastier sides of Sparta and what's wrong with Sparta from Xenophon's point of view. Let me give you the, the simplest piece of evidence is that yes. a Sparta could never produce a Xenophon or a Socrates. That's the, that's the beginning point, but there's a lot more than that. Oh, that's what he says, and he doesn't say it – does he say it glancingly? He doesn't say it as a major problem. Spartans great. No, what they he does is he – right, right. What he does is he outlines the education of Spartans, and then he outlines the education of the other Greeks – and uh, he sort of, you have to sort of map them up to see. Xenophon never says a nasty thing. Uh, in the Anabasis, his account of his own war travels, he says, uh, let's see if I can get the quote precise. He says, it is more noble, pious, and just, and also more pleasant to remember the good things than the bad. And so Xenophon never says bad, very seldom says bad things about people. As I mentioned his rhetoric earlier, right? So one of the things he'll do is he won't say bad things about you. He'll say good things about someone else and then compare you with them. So, for example, this is my favorite example to get a student. So, okay. imagine that I dated two high school, two girls in high school. This is the first. You have to suspend your imagination for a moment. Betty Lou and Betsy Sue, right? Okay. And Betty Lou, she was very pretty. Uh, she was very smart. She was uh, captain of the chess team. She was elected class president. She worked at homeless shelters. Uh, she was kind to children. Uh, she was good with animals. And what other virtues can you heap upon this girl? Right? So you just keep going down. And you say, that's Betty Lou. And I also dated Betsy Sue. And Betsy Sue was very pretty. And you realize that <laughs> right. what Xenophon is saying is that the, Betsy Sue lacked all of these other positive virtues that Betty Lou had. And so you kind of have to read most of Xenophon's writings in this same way. You have to put together for yourself what's wrong with Sparta on the basis of his contrast with other cities and the things that he praises them for. So, I mean, I could, go, I could give some examples, but one is that uh, the women, uh, when they're pregnant – he says, the other Greeks uh, moderate the amount of wine that women can drink when they're pregnant. Okay. And the Spartans did the opposite of that. <laughs> so probably not a good regime if the women are getting blasted on wine every night when they're pregnant. Just, but he doesn't say anything. He just says, this is uh, – most right. people live in such a way that the, the women who are pregnant don't drink all this wine. And Spartans right, do. right. Huh. And so you have to put together for yourself all – and then and as you start connecting the dots, it gets funnier and funnier, but – 
just for what it's worth. That's why, again, it seemed very modern and modern and modern writers <coughs> hide that stuff. I mean, that you're talking about right. rhetoric. It's interesting. Maybe the problem is people would read Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, who are kind of railing against people who are hiding truth and facts and things that they want to say. And they're saying it in a way that's not so abrasive. Whereas these all these other thinkers that we kind of praise in philosophy, they come right out and say the abrasive thing. They go after the people. They go after the rhetoricians and the sophists who like they won't speak right. plainly. They're all about telling you things and hiding it. And they hate that. And so Xenophon feels like the writers that we have, people who he understand does. social context. And I know I can't come out and say this. So I need to be, as you said, satirical and i need to say this in a way so yeah, i won't get careful. trouble yeah i think that that's absolutely right and i think he's once you see that he's playful you start to realize that i mean there are jokes embedded in jokes embedded in jokes and it's it's delightful um and i do think for what it's worth that he does rise i think he is plato's equal ultimately and and in some ways plato is superior in other ways i think that uh xenophon's actually superior because i think he's more careful in some ways let me try this in a following way so um you all know that there are philosophers whose thought gets perverted by their students and their students students right sure yeah. okay that doesn't happen in xenophon's case so plato i i think plato's thought gets perverted by his students and his students and his students students in fact there are schools of thought called platonism right which I think is a perversion of what Plato thought. And I, th and I think what Xenophon is anticipating for Plato is, look, your philosophy is so beautiful and mystical and, and that, that people are going to latch onto those parts and that's the part they're going to think is the whole of it. Yeah. Whereas Xenophon, by presenting himself as less impressive than he is, there's not, a, there's not Xenophantism, right? <laughs> so there's no, no school, right? And so he, he's sort of, he's, his philosophy has remained more intact than Plato's did at the time. Okay. And Plato got all, I mean... I think there is, uh, yeah, for centuries, I think Plato was misread because he was read through the lens of later Platonists. And that doesn't happen with Xenophon, so. Okay, uh, because we're talking about the plain speaking of Xenophon and because you sure. said he, he wrote right. Cyrus and he really thought Cyrus was great. And so he's got this sort of docudrama version of his life, semi-fictionalized right. version, really extolling him. The thing that jumped out in this excerpt to me, which I thought was really interesting, was it's a very short piece about how Cyrus made sure he kept the peace in the land. And he's like, oh, yeah, Cyrus was very clear about when people stole or when people um, committed crimes against property, <clears throat> chop their hands off, chop parts of them off, put their eyes out, and then don't kill them, leave them out there. And he said that all the merchants in these in Cyrus's lands knew that they could wander from place to place with their stuff and it wouldn't get stolen. Right. Is that at all? Is that just meant to be in the ancient world? Is it meant to be? Yeah, this is exactly how we should do things. Or we meant to, even in the ancient world, they're like, whoa, that's a little extreme. So this is Cyrus the Younger. This is in okay. the Anabasis of Cyrus. That's right. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, look, this book is supposedly about Cyrus the Younger's attempt to overthrow his brother's empire and take over the Persian Empire. And you realize, I think Xenophon shows you that Cyrus was actually very nasty. Um, and that he, like, it's not a sign of a healthy regime to walk around and notice that there are people with their eyes and hands missing. Correct. <laughs> so yeah. this was a sign of his excessive cruelty. And I think that what you'll see, what you see, if you read that book carefully, um, if you know anything about history, you know that Cyrus did not successfully overtake the empire. So I think that what Xenophon is doing is he's connecting some of Cyrus's faults to why he didn't succeed. Okay. So that's just one example. Another is that he's, he seemed to be irreverent. He seemed not to pay sufficient attention to the piety to piety. And, and this also led people not to support him when the chips were down. So, yeah. So, so then, so good. So what's but that's a perfect example here. Gosh, he was so just that 
that no one did anything wrong because you saw all these people with limbs missing. That's it's correct. Like, oh, it's not exactly a praise. Yeah. And it is pre- It is yeah, very good. clearly presented as praise, but it's yeah. presented. You're right. It's presented in such a way that you're like, I don't think that's totally praise there. I think something's going on. No, wrong. no, no. Good. And so, and so good. So when you discover this on your own, then you can start to see, you start to unlock some of the, what the teachings are. And so you, you, you have to sort of by your own thought, figure out, well, what would be a good regime? Right. What is a good ruler? And so I think that that's a more effective mode of teaching, too, because the reader has to figure these things out from instead of simply being told, look, a good ruler should do X, Y and Z. You you sort of get there on your own because you're like, well, that's there's problems here. And then you if you do make the connections, well, that's probably why these people didn't support him here. And actually, maybe a good ruler should do X, Y and Z instead of A, B and C. Okay, uh, this is where the deviation from this is where the deviation in the work you do in political science and history right. and things like that. This is where it deviates from philosophy, where I think philosophers in general, I think they lean toward Plato and they lean toward Aristotle. For sure. Let's spell out the really complicated rules. Let's think this thing all the way down to the end. And I think more practical users of philosophy look at that work and say, all the nuances, you've made these rules, but the rules don't hold in every case. So then what was the point of going all the way to the end of making the rules? Couldn't we use this more commonsensical look at historical figures and things yeah. to figure out how we should live our lives? And so I see this totally fight agree. between them. <laughs> no, for sure. One of my favorite examples of this about Xenophon trying to teach big lessons using somewhat uh, seemingly insignificant examples is in the education of Cyrus. Cyrus the Younger, or excuse me, Cyrus the Great, when he's a boy, um, he's Persian, but he goes to his grandfather's house in Medea, which is the neighboring uh, place, neighboring country. It's it's subtly implied that Medea is sort of, um, has, ter- has imperial rule over Persia, but it's very muted. In any event, um, so Cyrus is now, and Persia was supposed to be this austere republic, and uh, you know, the, the citizens live sort of modest lives, they have modest food, they, they sort of exercise virtue, they're tough. He goes to Medea, and his grandfather's the tyrant, and he's sort of soft, and there's lots of great food, he has a harem, all these kinds of things. Yeah. So uh, at a certain point, Cyrus uh, is asked to go back to Persia, and, and his, his mom would says, let's go back to Persia, and he says, no, no, I want to stay here in Medea, and she says, well, how are you going to learn Persian justice? And he's like, Mom, I already know it. You know, and she's like, well, I'm worried you're going to get corrupted here in Medea. And he's like, no, no, Mom, I already know Persian justice. Look, uh, when I was a kid in Persia, uh, the teacher put me in charge of a dispute between two boys. Okay? And if you've seen Tommy Boy, this, this example will resonate with you. <laughs> he's like, look, there was a big kid with a little coat and a little kid with a big coat. Yeah. And the big kid swapped the coats. And I was the judge. And I was like, yeah, this seems right. And then the teacher beat me because they said No. That's not just ownership. The law says the big guy has the little coat and the little guy has the big coat. And so, I mean, it's a playful, silly example, right? A dispute over coats between a big boy and a little boy. But right there, Cyrus is like, well, I thought it was more fitting for the big guy to have a big coat. So what is justice? Here is this silly little example. Xenophon's trying to point to you all the alternative possibilities about is the just what's fitting for everyone? Is the just what's legal? What's the problem with the law as the definition of justice? Are there limits to that? What's the problem with the fitting Right? So both of them have issues. What about an impartial third observer who can sort of dispense his wisdom impartially? Like, a, I don't know, like a philosopher king. Maybe that's how things should be decided. Right. So it's this silly example, but if you read it and pay very careful attention to a handful of key terms, you realize Xenophon's doing what Plato does in the Republic, but in this fun, playful example. And kids don't realize this is a serious discussion, so you just ask them, like, well, who should, who should have the big coat? Right. Right? And I say, I give this example in class. Uh, I say, look, imagine that McBrayer has a Stradivarius violin, but that I don't know how to play the violin. 
and I keep it locked in my attic, right? But we have a kid in class who's a virtuoso. Who should have the violin? And most of them, because they're good Americans, because they're lock-ins and believe in property rights, well, like, it's yours. That's right. <laughs> and it's that simple. That's the end of the story. I'm like, don't you think we're depriving... If this, if this virtuoso student could have the violin, we could all listen to it. So we're being deprived of a public good because of private property. And then they start to realize, oh, well, maybe there is something. That, you know, a violin is a sort of innocuous example, but I'm using it like Xenophon uses the code. There are other examples. Right. Who ought to rule? The guy who was legally elected or the guy who actually knows how to rule? Right? There are all kinds of ways you can sort of think about this. But Anyway, so this, this is why I, there's a number of reasons why I like Xenophon, but that's a big one. Okay, and given the fact that- I'm that, a simple man. That, well, that's the thing. That Xenophon story is so sharp, and it's like, it's got the, it's got the, it's folk wisdom. It's the, it's a, it's a, it's an old wives tale. It sounds good. It teaches right. you something, right. but it doesn't go deep enough to help you figure out how to craft a large political state. There is a- right, right. What is your take on the fact, for instance, I feel completely overwhelmed by the complexity of the modern political system, especially globally, as globalism, it feels oh, completely sure. overwhelming. Where do you, thinking about politics, do you think we are less over, are we, are we less overwhelmed or more overwhelmed than the ancients were thousands of years ago by the difficulty sure. of trying to figure out how to run a state? I would say more, but what is your feeling? Do you feel like things are worse now in our understanding? Are we, are we more understanding? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, in a way, I think some of the larger principles remain the same, but I think you're right that it's much more sophisticated and much more complicated. There are various levels. Like there's this whole bureaucracy in the United States of America that's not really – one of the branches, it's outside of the, it's the executive branch kind of, but it's established by the legislative. And then you think about world organizations and these kinds of things. So in a way it's more complicated, but in a way, so I, I've been writing this book on the education of Cyrus. One of the things that Cyrus does, Xenophon sort of exaggerates how far his conquest is. Okay. He basically has Cyrus conquer the entire known world. Okay. <laughs> and, so it's a, and so it's a world empire. Okay. And Xenophon ostensibly praises Cyrus for bringing peace to the whole world. But one of the things that it helped me to see, and I think this is what Xenophon's saying, and I think this is correct, is that a worldwide empire would be peaceful on one hand. There would not, not be war because one guy's in charge. But that it would rob us of something that makes us distinctly human. Uh, all of the people in Cyrus's empire are reduced to s subjects. They had been called citizens prior to that. Okay. And so I do think it sheds some light on as this global political thing moves – you know, in the 20th century, there were people who were hopeful that they were that we could sort of maybe gradually move toward a world government, right? So right. the EU, the United States, and these things. And so I think it, one of the things that helps us to see, one of the things that Zen can really help us to see is the limits of what we can actually hope to achieve from politics. It was just as true in the ancient world as it is now, with the following caveat. It's more dangerous now because the, a modern empire would have at its disposal technological powers that were unknown to the ancient world. So the, the power of tyranny now is much greater than it ever was. I'll, let me recommend to your listeners or uh, want the following. In the 1950s, there was a, a man who was a professor of a professor of mine who wrote a book called On Tyranny. Okay. Uh, his name is Leo Strauss. And in this book, Strauss uses a dialogue by Xenophon called The Hero to talk about the contemporary situation in the world. And one of the things he talks about is that, j just to your question, Brendan, was so yep. good, like, is the world more complicated? One of the things that Strauss argues is that modern political science has become so sophisticated that it doesn't see plainly what was obvious to ancient authors. So that Xenophon can help us see 
for example, that the, the Soviet Union is tyrannical and that there are threats to freedom that political scientists try to speak dispassionately about and try to remove any questions of bad and good and right and wrong and try to describe the thing. And, and Strauss is saying, look, you guys are over, it's so, you've overcomplicated it. It's very simple. Uh, yeah. Like this is bad, right? And so there's a, there's a simplicity to the ancients that I think is still somewhat, still has some traction, I would say. But that's a great question. Uh, so that's interesting. It's part of the reason why I read these. That's the most surprising thing about reading works right. from thousands of years ago in translation or in the original. You get the sense that, oh, these things haven't been resolved yet, which is also you still and then you look out at your world, you look at the ancients and there are great emperors and great uh, church leaders who say right. we can bring everyone under a unified church. We can bring everyone under a unified government. Um, we know we're good, so if we can only take control and convince people we're good, everything, it's, again, it's the vision of this utopia, a thing that doesn't exist, that apparently in human right. civilization cannot exist, but even today, there are people who, again, they have a utopian zeal for whatever their political, religious, philosophical bent happens to be, and you can just see that it just never works out. Don't you look back at history and say, this isn't going to work out? But I think uh, absolutely, but I think there, I have two responses to that. One is I think the reason why The Education of Cyrus is, there are a number of reasons why it's such a good book, but one of the things that it does, one of the reasons I think it's such a good book is that it shows you that that human longing is a perpetual human longing. Yes. There will always be people who want that. And so I think that, that the book, the, the Education of Cyrus, is, an, is a kind of, it's meant to be an antidote to this. So it, it arouses that desire in you like it, it knows that you have that desire to make heaven on earth. Reading about Cyrus is inspiring, so you get you get pumped by the story. And then, so in the penultimate chapter of the book, actually in the ultimate chapter of the book, when Cyrus dies, the empire all falls apart. Okay. And I think that one of the things Xenophon does at the end is is encourage you to realize, wait a minute, somewhere along the way, this took a really nasty turn. And so then you start going back through, and you realize that some of the nastier turns are way earlier than you thought. Uh. And so one of, one of the things that I think Xenophon, and by the way, I think Plato is doing something similar in the Republic, is they realize that the young really want to make things perfect. And so instead of saying, that's stupid, look at history, they say, okay, let's look at what perfection looks like. And it starts, at some point, you're like, wait a minute, this is, this is ne if you've read the Republic, you're like, wait a minute, what are we doing? Right. Like, no property? Women and children in common? Like, this... This sounds nuts. I don't want to be part of this. We're going to raise the leaders, and then they will be our leaders. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> and we're going to ask everyone over the age of 10 to leave when we found the city, which is a nice euphemism for, like, what Socrates was aware of, all revolutionaries, what do they do? They kill anyone that's old. They always employ the young, right? So he, I think what they're trying to do is, is arouse this in you and then purge you of it. So you mentioned, like, what have we learned? I mean, so Cyrus takes little Persia and turns it into this world empire. But in Xenophon, and this is a fictionalized account of Persia, the original Persia, he calls it a republic. And there was a king, there was a court system, and there was a council that advised the, the king. So you had a kind of mixed regime. Yeah. And, and I think that, there, and there's injustice in that regime, by the way. Xenophon, he sort of shows you the ways that it's unjust. But I think that what he's trying to show you by the end of the book is that I'm much more accepting of those minor injustices in that republican regime than I am of these enormous injustices that the empire must commit. And so I think that it sort of moderates your demands for what you expect from life. Like, I have friends and colleagues who complain about how awful life is in the United States right now. And I'm like, do you have, do you have any historical scope? <laughs> like, even if you think things are bad now, like, we're, it's still, we're still better off than 99.9% .9 of humans who've ever lived, right? I grew up in West Berlin. Like, I've seen communism at second hand. 
Like I've seen other regimes, like, I mean, we have air conditioning, I have a free fridge full of food, like right. things aren't so bad, like things aren't fine. Things would always be better, but things are good. Right. So I think, it, I think that Xenophon moderates your political opinions. Okay. Does Xenophon have anything to do with what I'm reading? And so dipping into Aristotle, Aristotle sure. really focuses, you can feel this. There is a perpetual conflict that you need to resolve. And you mentioned the refrigerator, the air conditioning, the material goodness, right. so wealth and comfort and the rich and the poor, you cannot do away with the rich and the poor. So your system needs to have a way of managing this conflict that will not go away. So this will not disappear. Right. So again, as you said, these are always going to be impulses in us. If I don't have a lot and I'm suffering, I'm going to be – You, it's natural to be angry at the people who have a lot. And the people who have a lot, right. it's natural for them to hoard what they have and hold on to it. That's a natural impulse. So sure. – does Xenophon have anything to say about that conflict between the rich and the poor? Yes. Yes, he does. So the first thing I'll say is when I mentioned that the Persian Republic was good, but that it had injustices, yeah. you actually put your finger at it. That's exactly the one he points to, that the poor are basically excluded from full citizenship. Yeah. Now, his answer to that, I think, is that, sorry, that's just kind of the way it has to be. Now, you ought to figure out some way to let some of the poor people ascend through the ranks. And he does sort of provide some outlets for that. But he's like, it's just a, it's an unfortunate fact of life. Right. And it's it's there. will I mean, even Madison says this in the Federalist Papers, that the faction, the most prevalent, prevalent factions over the time are the between rich and the poor. Now, let me try the following. I do think okay. that I, I, I put all of these guys in the same category, Aristotle, Plato, Xenophon. Aristotle says something very similar. You're going to have this conflict between rich and poor. And so the best thing you can do is kind of mix them in some way. Yep. And he says, and by the way, Aristotle, this is twenty five hundred years ago. Aristotle says the only way you're ever going to get rid of this entirely or, or not entirely, but the only way you're ever going to make serious progress on this is if there are robots. <laughs> Get to that one. Aristotle uses the word automatons. Okay, yeah, yeah. He's like, because he's, Aristotle was fully aware, and by the way, Aristotle um, makes greater concessions to slavery than we would for the same reason. He's like, the world, the ancient, it is an unfortunate fact of the world that people have to do work. Right. And, and therefore, the, the desire to get rid of that is unrealistic. There's always going to be the people who have to do the work. And the only answer to that that Aristotle foresaw was te technological progress. That's the only way to mitigate that in any serious way. And if you think about it, we've only started to mitigate that in the last 150, 200 years thanks to technology. But we are going to, obviously, as people talk about that, we are going to be trapped. We thought, again, we're always sold in, in the developing yeah. technological progress. We're always sold on the idea that, well, eventually you'll have more time. So you will work less and have more time. Right. But I don't think People we as doing. human beings have, have fully figured out what are you going to do when you don't have to work so much? I think we've discovered people That's will terrifying. give you things to do. I can't there. I cannot imagine what human life will look like if it becomes unnecessary for any humans to do physical labor. That seems like a really that's a hard for me to understand what that world looks like. Right. I mean, what? It's so contrary to every – I mean, even if right. you are incredibly wealthy, you still have to get up in the morning, walk around, brush your own teeth, walk places. You have to put things on Sensibly. top of each other. You have to still do yeah. something. Have you seen Wally, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> this, this is what it looks like. You're just in a pod drinking a Slurpee. Right. That's, that's what it looks like when the robots do everything. I, I'll tell you what's funny. I, I, you know, this is the, the, the uh, false confidence of the professor. You know, as, as they're increasing all of these robots and artificial intelligence, I'm like, well, thank goodness I'll never be put out of a job by a robot because what I do is, you know, you can't do it. You know, no computer can do what I do. Well, now they've got this program where you can just you can just write in. It's the AI intelligence bot, AI GPT or something. Oh like yeah, that, you, so you're worried, Chat GPT? They'll just type it if they need an answer. Yeah, they don't give have a lecture on 
give a lecture on X. You don't, what do you need me for? Right. And I'm sure before long, they could like put it on the, like make it a voice and then make, you know, put it on a nice icon that looks like a pleasing, you know, a professor and he's got a tweed coat and it's just there on your computer, (laughs) you know, and I'm out of work. I, so I want to walk, you, we, were t- we were talking about global, big, small, there's all kinds of arguments in the current world about whether the best polis, the best political system is small. I'm very enamored right. of, uh, in in Taoism, there's the pitch that you really run into problems. You Everyone should really live in a small village that is within walking distance of other small villages. Bigger than a small village, bad idea. You're not, you're not living. And there's that pitch all the way through philosophers that argue with, there are problems with getting bigger. Bigger is good. It creates all this great stuff when you get more specialized and you get bigger, but they can also see that the danger in it. I see the danger in this world now where we refuse to look at the fact that we are as human beings built to work in much smaller units, but we want for efficiency's sake, we want globalism. We want all the people to talk together. We want all the people to get along Oh, maybe this is too big a question, but in your no, opinion, no, no, no. what you're looking through political science or in Xenophon, too big is a problem. I understand that gets used as a hammer to hit people because we can see the benefits of globalism. There are clear benefits to being able to move yeah, the market, or, sure. but we can also see the I problem. can get a banana in Ohio in February. Correct. I example. have bananas in Kansas. I shouldn't have bananas yeah. in Kansas. You shouldn't. No. Sure. So first thing, I'll, I'll speak first about Xenophon and then give you a long, longer answer okay. that's, that's, I think, steeped in Xenophon, but outside of him. So I use the ancients to understand the modern world. It's kind of what I do. So the first thing I'll say is, as I've been talking about, I think Xenophon, if you read the education of Cyrus somewhat closely, or even not super closely, you'll see that he prefers the small Republic of Persia at the beginning of the book to the large Persian Empire. Now, thinking through why that is, I think that, it, as I mentioned, it sort of dehumanizes humans to live in this large world empire. We lose something distinctly human about us. Now, Aristotle says that man is political by nature, which means man is built for a polis, a city. So if if man is built for this size of a thing, a small size thing, and you take him out of that and put him in this enormous thing, then he's not going to fit well in that. I actually have another book that I'm working on on this precisely this question, actually. But here's here's the problem, Brendan, right now in the modern world. And it's largely a – we tend to think of – thinking about politics in terms of what kind of regime it ought to be, but we don't think about that regime has to live alongside other regimes. And so in the modern world, I think it's increasingly impossible to live in a small regime just because of the dangers and the threats posed by other regimes. And so like what, what did Napoleon teach every country in Germany as he was tearing through there? He's like, no, you need to have a modern state with a bureaucracy and, a, and a, an army, right? Otherwise you're not going to survive. And so I, I think it is, I do think it is extremely problematic that in modernity, I mean, unless you live in some sort of faraway place, you're isolated like Switzerland, right? Right. But the United States, by, by and large, countries are going to have to be big. And that's not good for human beings. So here's, the, here's what I would encourage readers to think about. I would say in that system where you have to be a modern state to survive, and I do think the modern state is, is radically different than a, a polis. They're not the same thing. The best kind of modern state one could hope for would be a federal republic, one that allows for some some level of political autonomy to smaller levels. And I think you see this in healthy communities within the United States. Mm-hmm. Tocqueville talks about this, so I'd encourage readers to look at Tocqueville's book. It's the best book ever written on America. It's called Democracy in America. And in that book, he talks about these New England townships and how good they were at self-government. 
So if you're if you're political by nature, that means you ought to govern yourself. Right. But it's hard to govern yourself in a in a modern like I don't know three hundred of my three hundred million of my fellow citizens, but in the small town I live in, I actually can know people and I can have an eye on what's going on. I can have a finger on the pulse. I can rule and be ruled in turn. I can go sit on the committees. I can go to the town halls. And so, yeah, I think you're right uh, that the modern state is not necessarily conducive to human flourishing. And the, but the best way to mitigate that is to have some some level of local autonomy for political communities, which is why it's nice to live in America where we have that. Right. Do you have hope? I mean, whatever your own your own views and having right. looked at the ancients and how civilizations rise and fall, a lot of t- everybody likes to talk about the, the the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and everything right. is always the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of the right. Roman. Right, Empire. right, right, right. Every country is like that. We're we're going to go through what Rome did. Um, do you do you think um, things are so big and they're as you've pointed out? I like the fact that you practically pointed out it is necessary in this world we can see for survival for these countries to be this large. So we need that. What what would change other than I talk about my friend to my friend about this? What would change other than catastrophe to make smaller federated units a more powerful and allow people to flourish more inside these giant units? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I think it's going to. I mean, it seems only to be in a handful of places uh, that were influenced by Lockean or principles, or even this French thinker named Montesquieu. So you're right. Most states don't have this. Uh, most states don't have anything like this federal organization. I mean, China is organized top down, right? I mean, the top tells the next level, tells the next level, tells the next level, right? Uh, and I would say that uh, probably it's difficult to flourish as a human being in China right now as a result. Um, you're right. What, what are my hopes for the future? Um, you know, I think there's still a space that one could carve out for oneself in the United States of America that is conducive to happiness. Maybe maybe I'll try this one slightly different way. Yes. I'll bring it back to Xenophon. Xenophon, as I mentioned, he left Athens to go on a military campaign into Persia. And one of the reasons he left Athens is because he saw the writing on the wall. He saw that Athens was in decline, and it actually was. It ended up losing the war that it was in called the Peloponnesian War. He foresaw that. And so what he did is he he made himself a little bit of property outside of town, and he devoted himself to reading and writing. And so I, I do think that for those of us in the West... Um, and various other places around the world, but typically mostly in the West, we are, our economies are so big, our countries are so big that it does grant those of us who want the freedom to kind of cultivate our own gardens, so to speak. But I do think there's reasonable hope that, um, you know, that, that there, that federalism will be, um, promoted in the United States. I mean, it doesn't seem to be currently on the top of anybody's agenda, but it has been in the last 20, 30 years, there've been various... Right, Reagan tried to sort of things put things back to the state level, and there there are some there are some movements in that direction. But look, I, I just think that um, we know this, right? You you feel like you're being ruled if it's if it's one capital all the way over there. But you want I think that left and right can agree that we would all like some local control over our schools right. and over right. I don't think it's a partisan issue to be like we should have some local like we should figure out what we want, what works best for us. Right. Not on the big issues, right? Like, of course, we should, I mean, like, all the rights protected in the Constitution. We shouldn't be allowed to say no blacks allowed or, right? No, of course not. All the rights need to be protected. But barring that, like, yeah, we can figure out how to zone our schools and where food should be and stuff like that. I think there is more balance. Again, the thing I like about Xenophon is there is more balance. Right. I think it's harder to find it in the philosophers that are going all the way down to the very bottom of an issue. You yeah. You can easily wind up, as you said, Plato said things that apparently these Platonists and Neoplatonists, like, I'm not sure where you got this. I can understand right. how you read this. 
even as your thing about talking about the <clears throat> the Republic, the Philosopher Kings is presented as that people say Plato and Socrates are arguing that this is how a government should right. be run. And you're arguing uh, that's might be an example. He might be running it to the end so you can purge this from your system and not think that this right. can work properly. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't want any wise man telling me how, like I, I want to live how I want to live. Right? Maybe I that's because I'm an American. I find the short little communist manifesto extremely – I find it inspiring. I find the idea yeah. that yeah, I, sure. the idea is inspiring. But even just wedged right in that where the person who wrote the communist manifesto is putting things in, yeah, kids can't be in families. Families need to be dissolved and the kids need to be put in state schools. And you're like – and it My just favorite rings part like, of the communist – But I don't think he was trying to put stuff in there that made you think – I don't think – in that case, he was thinking this is a bad idea. <laughs> well, the the great thing about the Communist Manifesto is Marx begins by saying there are all these dirty, dirty rumors floating around about what people say about communists. So let's set the record straight. <laughs> they say these three nasty things about us. They say we want to abolish the family. They say we want to abolish private property. They say we want to get rid of countries. And they're right. We do want to get rid of families <laughs> and private property. Correct. Wait, right. that's not a defense. You're you're admitting the like yeah. Right. And so it's sort of like oh yeah. And so but by the way that. Plato, there's a nice contrast there that you brought out, I think, between Xenophon and especially Plato on the one hand and Marx on the other. Plato talks about the communism of women and children, and so does Marx. But Marx is serious. But what I think Plato's trying to show you is, is if, oh, you want perfect justice? We have to actually get rid of the family. And I think what he's trying carefully to show you is that actually you don't want perfect justice. Because you want some, like, you want parents to be, to be able to privilege their own children. And you'd think they're monsters if they don't. There's... What I think Marx re- denies, I mean, he's explicit about this, by the way. He denies that there is human nature. He says this in the Communist Manifesto, and, and in other works he calls it species being, right? Because he believes that it's malleable and you can change it. Right. And, and while that may be true to an extent, it seems to me that there are salient features of human nature that simply cannot be done away with, like liking your own children better than someone else's children. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, as irrational as that is, by the way, because some of my friends have pretty lousy kids, they still seem to prefer their own kids to other people's kids. And you can't just, I don't think you can, I don't think Marx can legislate that away. And he, he thinks you can. But it, it is fascinating to see the fight continue on between the people who do think oh, yeah. there is no such thing as human nature and the people who think that human nature right. is forever. You can adjust things. We are incredibly adaptable creatures, but you can't just do away with it. And so just back, maybe closing Xenophon, the thing I like best yeah. about his thing about horses, I've talked to veterinarians for years. I worked with veterinarians yeah. and their appreciation for animals. And Xenophon, number one, is appreciating you need to watch the behavior of the animal. What is the animal like? You can't adjust that. You need to work around how that particular right. horse is. You need to observe that. That's right. So it's it's so yeah, so definitely on the side of there is a nature. And I think it's he's there. the same way. I think he's the same way with human beings. That's why the empire doesn't work because of human nature. Yeah. You have to. I'll, 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 at the very beginning of the education, Cyrus, he says we noticed that it was easier to rule animals than humans. And so what he shows you Cyrus doing throughout the course of the book is actually turning all of his citizens into animals, basically. And so what you realize is he's ferreting out human nature to try and make them easier to, to – he actually uses the verb taming. We're taming these citizens. So in any event, yeah, I mean I think that there's that, that core human nature that, that's still there that can't be eradicated for, for Xenophon. Okay, tell me again your fa- – what is, what is your favorite translation of Cyrus and then when is your book on Cyrus? When's that going to come out? Sure. So uh, my favorite translation of the Xenophon's Education of Cyrus yes. is by Wayne Ambler with Cornell University Press. Uh, my favorite translation of the Anabasis of Cyrus is also by Wayne Ambler, uh, Cornell University Press. Wayne's, I should give him, he should give me royalties for this. I know, seriously. 
Um, so all of the Xenophon with Cornell University Press is where I would point you. Um, they have everything except a work by him called the Hellenica, which is Xenophon's account of the end of uh, the Peloponnesian War, and then some. Um, when is my book coming out? I have about three chapters of it written. Um, I just got contacted by a press this week, actually, soliciting it, but I think I'm going to hold off until I'm finished. So my guess would be it's January of 23 now. I would say out January 25. So put it on your Amazon waiting list. Uh, I will. In addition, my okay. last question is thinking about Xenophon yeah. as an example. When you write books that are about intensely, could be intensely philosophical, very detailed, right. very jargony when you write books, do you always set out to, I want to write an, an accessible book or I want to write a book that academics will also, you know, say? This yeah, I guess, I guess I probably sadly – so I, I do various types of writing. And I sometimes write in popular sort of outlets. And there I'm much more open than trying to capture – I've written about Xenophon in popular sort of outlets. But with an academic book, I mean, I'll probably try to be sadly a little more heady. But I, I will say I sometimes I, – I confess I sometimes leave little Easter eggs in, make jokes that if you have to sort of see in the footnotes and this. But I mean, I always try to make it accessible. I always think to myself, you know, what would my old man, could he understand this if I'm doing this? Um, so yeah, probably a little too heady, but I think anybody, anybody could read anything I've written and, and make some profit out of it.